It's time for your NBA fix. This is the Big Show Daily Assist. Featuring all the latest news and insight on the association. Now joining the Big Show. Senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, Chris Mannix. On 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Chris, how are you today, sir? I'm good, guys. How you doing? Hey, we're doing great. Swimming in basketball. We love it. Um, let's uh, let's start out talking a little uh, broad NBA, and we'll get to the Jazz with you here in a little bit. But uh, LeBron James, unfortunately, high ankle sprain. Tough news over the weekend. How does that alter things in the Western Conference with him uh, missing some time? Well, it you know for the Lakers, obviously, it's massive, and it raises the question of you know can they keep the ship right you know, well enough or right enough to even make the playoffs. I mean, it it might sound crazy, but they're only six games back of that number nine seed. And, you know, LeBron, you know, early indications are it'll be at least a couple of weeks, if not more, as he recovers. Uh, Anthony Davis, as far as I know, there's no official timetable on his return. And, you know, those kind of calf injuries you do try to be extra careful with. So it's going to be incumbent on this this Laker team that – you know, isn't what their numbers say they are without those two players in the lineup. I mean, they are the number one ranked defense we saw last night. That's not uh, what they are without Davis and LeBron. And offensively, you know, Frank Vogel's really going to have to mix and match some lineups here to to get some production. Only two guys were in double figures uh, from the starting lineup last night for the Lakers. They've got to get more production out of those guys. So it'll be interesting to see just how big a skid the Lakers go on with those top two guys down. I don't know, uh, Chris. I've always hated injuries in sports, and it, it, it's just such a big factor on everything. One injury like that, and it just punches you right in the gut. I was thinking about the injury to the ball kid with the Pelicans. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just I, 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 as rugged as the NBA is, and I know the old timers from the seventies and eighties say it's nothing compared to what it was like back then. But it's a tough sport. It's it's tough to get through a season without getting nicked. Yeah, especially with, you know, injuries that seem kind of freakish. I mean, LeBron, who has been, you know, basically an Ironman throughout his nearly two-decade career. I mean, he's played at least 85% of his team's games in all but two seasons in the league. Um, It's just tough to see him go down, you know, in kind of a freak play like that. And for LaMelo to have a broken wrist, I mean, that's just kind of the kind of weird things that just come up in a season. But it it does throw – I mean, look, it throws everything into flux with the Lakers. You know, all of a sudden they're just trying to hang on to a spot in the playoffs as opposed to fighting for a top three seed, you know, to pivot it to the the, uh, the Hornets. Uh, you know, they might go with the trade deadline from potential buyers to sellers. I mean, it, it changes just like that. I mean, with LaMelo done for the year, you might see the Hornets more willing to part with Devontae Graham or a Terry Rozier as they start eyeballing 2021-22 and not, you know, making the playoffs this season. Thanks, thanks for correcting me on that. I got the teams mixed up with the other ball. I got my ball, two balls in the air, they got mixed up. You're right. The <laughs> Hornets. I'm sorry. Uh, Chris Mannix with us uh, from Sports Illustrated, 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. So kind of taking off on uh, on that answer, Chris, who are buyers in the trade market this year? Well, Miami is definitely a buyer. They have been, I think, the most aggressive team from the rival executives that I've talked to over the last few days as they try to get their hands on veteran talent. Uh, Kyle Lowry is someone that's on their radar. 
Victor Oladipo with Houston is on their radar, and the Heat have shown a willingness to part with you know one of their young guards in Tyler Hero or Duncan Robinson in the right deal. So uh, I would keep an eye on them. Boston, you you have to keep watching because they have that monster trade exception of $28.5 million. I know the Celtics covet Harrison Barnes. That's their top target. Uh, there's been some reporting that they like Aaron Gordon. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they like him. Will they pay the price that Orlando's looking for? That's pretty high. Uh, they are uh, two of the bigger buyers that are out there. Sellers, Houston's a seller. I don't think Oladipo makes it uh, past the deadline with the Rockets. I don't I think they know he's not long for there, and I think they're going to cut their losses uh, before Thursday afternoon. Um, and, and Toronto, because they're reeling right now, I mean, that's a team that I could see moving off. If it's not Lowry, maybe some other veteran pieces on that roster as well. Chris, do you believe the Bucks are uh, getting their stuff together? They're 9-1 and one over their last 10, and they've won six straight. What do you make of it? Well, I mean, I make of it that Drew Holiday's back in the mix. And the longer Drew Holiday gets with that team – uh, the better, um, you know, he, he was, you know, their big offseason pickup, you know, in that trade with New Orleans and, you know, he missed uh, three weeks to a month, whatever it was with the COVID issue, you know, getting back and getting to the rotation took him some time, but I mean, he, he's just a big part of what they do. And look, at some point, you know, I'm going to be writing about this tomorrow too. Like at some point we have to just acknowledge that Giannis might be the MVP again. Like just like his numbers are close to identical to what they were last year. And this Bucks team goes on and you know continues this run and winds up as the top seed in the Eastern Conference while Embiid is down and LeBron is down and Giannis is playing like 80 games. Uh, well, I mean, or whatever the max number of games is they wind up playing, forget 70, whatever it is that they wind up actually playing. We're going to have to discuss it. Like, it's going to have, like, you know, there's some people that say, ah, oh, you can't win three in a row. That's rarefied air of, like, Larry Bird, Will Chamberlain, and Bill Russell. You can't really look at it like that. It's in a vacuum. Like, is he having the best season? You can make an argument that he has. I mean, any other player that was averaging 30 and 12 you know, on, a, on a really good team, you'd be talking about them as the MVP. Giannis, I think, for some reason, there's, like, voter fatigue with him, and he's, he's less likely to get the votes that way. But I think that, you know, this Milwaukee team is not only good, but Giannis, I think, is once again uh, poised to, to emerge as the MVP. Chris, Ben Simmons continues to uh, campaign, saying that he's the best defensive player on the planet. He made the argument over the weekend that uh, his ability to switch one through five makes him uh, unique, which is is certainly the case, and talked about Rudy, and actually respectfully talked about Rudy's abilities, but promoted his own at the same time. Rudy uh, commented yesterday that he believes uh, it's he's the best defensive player because of overall impact on the game, and I, you know, both players had some strong arguments. But give me, give us your analysis on those two, and who is the best defensive player on the planet? Well, it, it, it's apples and oranges in what they do, obviously, and it's reminiscent in a way of, I mean, I think there were a number of years that Gary Payton and Dikembe Mutombo competed for that, didn't they? Like it was. Yeah. You know, two guys that were very different but dominant in their respective ways as defensive players. Um, I, look, I, I always lean towards Rudy because, and I've said this to you guys before, when I talk to scouts about Gobert, they say he's the only player whose defensive presence is ba- basically puts him at the top of the scouting report. I mean, Ben Simmons is, is right. He is great defensively at five positions, but I don't think there's a player in the league that changes the game in the way Gobert does. If you have Ben Simmons, like you can, 
he can neutralize one of your players. Gobert can neutralize five, and he can neutralize what you do uh, if you are a team that is you know inclined to penetrate and score, try to score in the paint. He just changes the game that way. I think he continues to improve as a pick-and-roll defender, which is a big reason the Jazz have been really good at defending the three. Um, so, I, like, I wouldn't have a problem with a vote for either one of them for Defensive Player of the Year because they're both excellent. But for me, it's – and I think I voted for him last year too. Like, it, it continues to be – Rudy Gobert's award to lose every season. Chris, speaking of defense and with the Jazz, um, Jake and I were talking about this earlier, and Jake has been stressing that uh, the Jazz sort of undulations that they've uh, been through recently have started at the defensive end, and, yep. and I agree I agree with him. So my question for you is, when you have a player like Rudy Gobert as your defensive anchor, what happens? What do you, what does a team have to do in order to recapture uh, their their defensive vibe? Because obviously they can play good defense. We've seen that through the first half of the season. What do you think they have to do? I mean, for me, it's it's when when I watch the Jazz in this last stretch when they've been what three and two or something since the break. You know, I, I think it's there, there's there's. I don't want to call it a laziness to the way they play defense now, but it's not the same type of energy that I saw when they were on that 20 and two streak or whatever it was. Um, you know, it, look, it, Donovan Mitchell is a great player, but I don't think he's been the same defensively over the stretch. I say the same thing about Joe Ingles. Like I think individually there's got to be a little bit more accountability on the defensive end of the floor. I mean, Rudy is still Rudy and he cleans up a lot of mistakes, but you can't just expect him to be there and doing that. You have to really take it upon yourself to be, uh, a top defensive player, you know, every minute you're out there on the floor. And there were times, many times during the season that the Jazz played like that. So there's no reason to believe, as you said, that they can't get back to that. But for right now, I think it's it's individual accountability. It's not the schemes. It's, not the, it's the same thing that made them dominant the first half of the season. It's just individually, I think they took their foot off the gas a little bit defensively after the All-Star break, and they have to find a way to press that pedal once again. Well, they're going to have a tough challenge tonight. Uh, they've got the Chicago Bulls, and you know the Bulls as a as a team are better. I don't, you know, certainly haven't arrived quite yet. But the, there's no doubt that Zach Levine has been awesome. All star campaign. He's been really, really good. And the Jazz have struggled to slow down guards. Talk about Zach and what he's figured out in his own game to take it to the next level. Yeah, I mean, look, he's still hyper athletic, which is a great strength for him. But he has evolved into a complete player. I mean, he's one of the most efficient scorers in the league. And that's something that, you know, this season, like Mitchell's kind of struggled with a little bit, you know, being efficient um, on most nights. So I did have that great 42.9 where I think he was over 50%, but uh, by and large, he's had some issues there. Zach Levine though, has been great at efficiency all season long. Uh, so that's what you got to watch out for. He's not just a volume shooter on a bad team. He's, you know, a guy that picks his spots, good mid range game, good three point game. As I said, super athletic and can score at the rim. I mean, he's, he's just a real deal. Um, I don't know where I'd rank him among Eastern Conference guards or NBA guards, but obviously he's up there among the top, you know, five or ten as as far as that goes as being an All Star. So uh, he's a handful, that's for sure. I think for a guy like Donovan Mitchell, he'll probably get a lot of turns on him tonight. In a way, it's it's Donovan's chance to kind of shake off the the defensive malaise that's kind of enveloped this team lately. If Donovan Mitchell does a does a good job on on Levine in the spots that he has him, uh, I think this team could could get another big win. Okay, so I ask you this question, Chris, at uh, great risk because Jake has already told me that it's uh, not that good of a question. <laughs> I, I, I just throw that out there. But let me let me th- run it past you. 
Why is it that teams need – we were talking about Donovan Mitchell and him taking over games at the end of games. If a team is being efficient and effective through uh, through the first three quarters, why is it important to rely on a star player at the end as opposed to powering through with three or four offensive forces at one end and playing good defense at the other? No, I, I get it because, I mean, look, you're – if you're a, uh, a team that moves the ball well and has multiple options and has success using those multiple options, why would you want to get away from it um, end of games? I don't know if there's a clear answer for that necessarily. I guess the only thing you could say is that end of game situations, um, when you absolutely have to have a bucket, you know, teams are the opposing team is going to really play their very best defense. You're not going to get any kind of uh, possessions off. You know, with these with with these teams like you do get in the first three plus quarters, and you, you just you just have a lack of trust I think at times in anybody but that one guy. I mean Mitchell is the guy that it has to be because he is their best individual score. And look, I, I think you theoretically could continue to play the way you want to play, move the ball around, and hope that Mike Conley makes shots, hope that Joe Ingles makes shots, hope that you know Jordan Clarkson if he's out there can keep making shots. And I think you will see a lot of that still with a team like Utah, but. You know, down the stretch, uh, close game. You know, in order to minimize turnovers, in order to to make sure that you you know, get the best shot you possibly can, it's going to wind up in the hands of your best player, and that's what makes you know Donovan's evolution as that type of scorer that much more important. Chris Mannix with us from uh, Sports Illustrated. Last thing from me, uh, Chris. I, I'm not a huge boxing guy, but lo and behold, I'm surfing the web over the weekend, and I find this viral clip of a boxer. <laughs> Uh, screaming the F word and flipping off the crowd. And then lo and behold, I look a little further in the clip and there's a familiar face right there holding the microphone. What did, what'd you get yourself into this weekend, Chris? Uh, those post-fight interviews that I do for DAZN, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing quite like a post-fight interview in boxing because these guys have just been punched in the head for six, seven, eight, nine <laughs> rounds or whatever it is. And then there's me hopping in the ring asking them all about it which I, I can't imagine is all that pleasant occurrence. What happened there was Maurice Hooker, who is a Dallas native, uh, fought Virgil Ortiz in what was an excellent fight on Saturday on DAZN. And uh, Hooker uh, was in an exchange with Ortiz and broke his hand uh, on the punch and, and went down and couldn't get up from it. Uh, he brought that up you know, during the post-fight interview. The crowd viewed it as kind of a cop-out since he was already losing the fight and uh, started to boo. And uh, Hooker, uh, I think he just, you know, reacted instinctively and just went to the crowd and, you know, told them to bleep off. And then, like Stone Cold Steve Austin, the WWE stuck both <laughs> fingers in the air and uh, and then walked right out of the ring. So uh, I, I would say it's not, not even my weirdest post by interview. I've had probably a handful more that have been more bizarre. But uh, I, I did appreciate the the finality that Maurice Hooker gave to the interview where he just said, bleep y'all, hopped out of the ring, and uh, that was that. Have you, ever been in the, have you ever been in the ring, Chris, when a melee breaks out and uh, you've had to sort of duck and run? Um, not so not, – I mean, melees are tough because they – nowadays there's so many people in the ring that they get broken up pretty quickly. But honestly, when, when, I, when scuffles do break out – and sometimes, look, being honest, sometimes promoters and networks invite these things. Like if a guy wins and he's supposed to face somebody else next and that fighter's in the crowd – They'll bring that fighter in there because they want the <laughs> altercation for, you know, the visual, for the video to, to tease that next fight. And my job in those positions, not to get out of the way, 
It's to make sure that damn microphone's between them so that the, <laughs> the, everybody picks up every word that's said. That's happened half a dozen times or more in my career. I've never been, been struck or anything like that, so that's, I guess, a positive. But if there's a melee going on, you better believe that you're going to see, like, my hand reaching out to keep it close to one of the participants. <laughs> Tell you what, you, you better get a bonus for those melees. For... <laughs> well, the, the, the great thing about these, these like, the, the – the hooker video was funny because hooker's a tall guy, 5'10", whatever. Usually when I'm doing these interviews, it's like something out of Gulliver's Travels where I'm 6'3", and I'm like looking down at this like 5'4", lightweight, and these guys are pushing each other around. I look like, I don't know, like the principal stepping between two kids on the playground. It's, uh, it's, it's often, the optics are often pretty funny. You're like the human boom mic. Basically, basically, both these situations. Have you ever, Chris, have you ever been intimidated by a fighter? Because, I mean, these guys are trained to, to beat people up. Have you ever been intimidated in that regard? I've had fighters attempt to, um, both in the ring and outside it, uh, because, look, it's it's part of my job as a writer, too, to, to criticize. And, and boxers, I think, have thinner skin than than other athletes in other sports. Uh, so in the ring, I've had guys kind of get in my face a little bit. Um, yeah, I never I, – I don't know what it is. Like, I never it, – like, it's almost like the thought of, like, well, if you hit me, I mean, I've, I don't think it's going to look bad on me. Like, I'll, I'll take it, and then I'll, I'll probably collect a big check from you at some point <laughs> on the line. So go, go right ahead. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've definitely had guys that have, you know, gotten my face a little bit, had a back and forth. But I like the back and forth. And being honest, like, a lot of the fighters that I've criticized – they actually appreciate the back and forth. They say something to me, and they're like, well, you said I couldn't do this, and I, and I articulate why. Like, I'm not just saying stuff for the sake of saying stuff. I have reasons for saying it, and oftentimes that leads to, to the best TV. When, and, and it comes to anything. You guys know in radio, like, I think interviews are with, with athletes are better if it gets a little adversarial at times. If you start pushing and pushing back and, and having a real conversation as opposed to just kind of a, uh, a stock Q&A. Well, Chris, thank you very much as always. Have a great week. You got it, guys. There's our friend Chris Mannix, senior NBA writer for Sports Illustrated, and also, of course, uh, covers boxing. And yeah, if you didn't see that uh, that viral <laughs> that viral video, it's really something because <laughs> you can you can see the boxer hear the booze and like the go across like you can see the thoughts go through his mind like, hey, hey, <laughs> he, he kind of steps back and yells at him. I'm waiting to see Chris in the ring with like a uh, with a catcher's mask on, or you know, <laughs> with a wearing a helmet or something. That's you know, that's funny. Him talk about how much taller he is than a lot of the fighters a lot of the time. I can't, feel like the principal. Can't you see him like uh, <laughs> like uh, I've been to what uh, <clears throat> uh, baby blessing uh, at uh, in LDS Church, right where the the poor guy holding the microphone and oh. it looks like his arm is going to fall off. You know, and, and usually. It, <laughs> Having been in that situation myself, it's the worst. Do you ever signal to the the dude doing the blessing like, "Hey, let's"? <laughs> I, have, uh... <laughs> I have in my in my past career, I have audibly, very audibly, close to the mic, gone. <sighs> <laughs> like, hey, dude, my arm's about to fall off here. Seriously. Let's let's uh, let's get this thing in the book. We got the message. Here, we pal. got it. 